here and I sound like this today, <laughs> which is why we thought it would be better to let Millie take today's interview solo. So you are going to hear from Millie. I'll let her tell you all about it. But suffice to say, this conversation has cheered me up a lot with my packets of tissues and cups of soup. So I hope that you really enjoy it as well. And I'll be back soon. Thanks. Hey, Remakers, it's Millie here. And today I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing Claire O'Rourke, author of Together We Can, Everyday Australians Doing Amazing Things to Give Our Planet a Future. So if you're someone like me who's pretty freaked out about climate change, this is probably an episode for you. So Claire is a campaigner, communicator, behaviour change expert, partner and parent. Totally climate freaked out, Claire helps people and organisations take action on climate change and she currently works for the Sunrise Project. Claire's been a national director of the Solar Citizens. She's worked for Amnesty International. She's previously been a journalist. Um, she's got a, amazing stories to tell. So Claire and I talk about why she wrote this book, how we both run shrieking from climate grief, even though we know it's helpful to face it. And Claire not only gives wonderful examples of climate action in the community, business and government, but she also teaches me about the hopeful reality of positive tipping points. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to The Remakers. Um, it's my absolute pleasure this week to be interviewing Claire O'Rourke, um, author of Together We Can. So welcome, Claire. We're so glad you're here. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Millie. So you've written this wonderful, amazing book about the things that everyday Australians are doing to address the climate crisis. And we'll go into some of the details and some of the exciting parts of that shortly. But I always want to who's the person behind the book and and what's what's the story there so what's the story you'd like to tell a little bit about who you are and how you actually came to be doing this and writing this book well I'm a climate advocate activist I've worked on social justice and been a campaigner and communicator for and community organizer for many years after my first reasonably short career as a journalist um, but I think more importantly I have two teenage daughters and partner and we live on Darawal country which is just um, north of Wollongong which is an industrial city that's going to go through a hefty transition but it's also incredibly beautiful and it's been cared for by First Nations people for tens of thousands of years and it's an enormous privilege to be able to um, be close to the sea and you know close to the Illawarra Escarpment and the subtropical rainforest that um, we have here uh, to enjoy and care for and be caretakers for. The, um, but it's also an interesting area with a rich industrial history, a rich progressive history. Um, it's not my first home. My first home was up on um, Awabakal country on Lake Macquarie. My father worked in the coal power sector for his entire career and you know, it's quite interesting to have that background of, you know, and the benefit of, you know, so like so many Australians, I've benefited from um, fossil fuel industries, you know, that's, you know, ensured there's been, you know, salary coming into my household. And um, 
Yeah, I just I just think um, the privilege that I've got and the skills that I've got have um, I've made decisions in my life to be able to orient them towards enabling you know kind of large impact action obviously, but also to as much as possible enable other people to to claim their own agency and take action for themselves. Um, and you know I appreciate that. For a whole lot of people, that can be quite challenging because of um, individual circumstances but um, and the way that our society is structured can sometimes make that very hard for people. And so the, the you know, kind of influence and privilege that I have in my life, um, you know, it's important to me to ensure that that is directed towards, you know, really outsized action and where we can get kind of mass participation in that as well. And that was kind of how I tried to approach the thinking in the book, Yeah. Yeah, I think that point about like it's fascinating when you hear stories of people who've moved into that climate action with that background in in coal or fossil fuels. And I remember hearing someone once talk saying, you know, hang on, don't blame us as a community. We we put our our health and um, you know our time and our lives on the line to keep the lights on. Don't tell us when now to blame for everything else. And I, I thought that was a really interesting perspective. So I love that you bring that a little bit just into your story there. Who did you, when you were thinking about writing this book and having that, that impact, like who were you writing it for? Well, it was quite a really strange convergence of my professional and personal experience that brought me to writing the book and thinking that it would really resonate for other people. So I had a, my, I was already working on climate change for a bunch of years and during the Black Summer Fires, um, we had to pack up our house and clean up our house and realise that, you know, we've got a lot of forest around us. It would probably burn down. We had a bit of a fire scare in the middle of suburbia, which was kind of quite jarring. Um, had, a, had, had a climate moment. And um, so I kind of put up a bit of a brave face about that, um, you know, at work because, you know, there's so many people through the climate movement who are like really gritty, you know, resilient activists but I was kind of falling apart a little bit and um, I started doing some personal work on that that I write about in the book through the Good Grief program which was really enriching at a time when we were all going into lockdown. Um, So I kind of had my own personal piece of trauma that I was processing but at the same time we did a a study um, called Climate Compass which you know looked at Australian attitudes to climate change and we found that there was about a quarter of Australians aged from 16 to 75 who were well, just as freaked out as I was really. And I thought, goodness, you know, I'm certainly not alone in the way that I'm feeling. Um, there was, and, and I just thought, what do I need to do to actually be more intentional about looking for signs of hope and progress that can help me be more motivated? And the more stories I uncover- uncovered, the more I wanted to keep going and it just kind of coalesced around the idea for a book and I, I thought it would find it would be helpful for people. I thought it would find an audience and be helpful for people because um, that experience of being very worried about climate change is just so prevalent. Mm. So you sort of wrote it for yourself and the rest of us as a, a, a dual audience in that way, all of us feeling like you were. Yeah, and climate, talking about climate change and how you feel about climate change is like a gigantic taboo. Um, it can be a taboo in one sense that, you know, um, you might be worried that people don't have the same views and you're kind of, you know, exposing yourself and be, being quite vulnerable. So there's that kind of piece of it. 
But then there's the other piece about, you know, kind of for people who have privilege and hold privilege, which I see that I do, um, do we have any right to talk about that anyway? You know, because there are people who are far worse off than us. You know, there are people who are, you know, particularly First Nations people and people of colour who have not um, been allowed, you know, by the kind of societal, cultural constraints and incredible racism that we have in this country um, to step in and, you know, have these conversations and be vulnerable. So, um, and it was through talking to uh, experts who work in climate psychology that, you know, yes, we recognise that there are structural problems within our society, but at the same time, if we're going to start a pathway to healing, we need to start talking about it. And the more I started talking about how I was feeling about it, the more other people shared that they were similarly freaked out. And um, so I felt there was a shared experience there as well that we, we, need to, we need to tap into if we're going to start opening up the potential for possibility, creativity and collective action. Yeah, I really liked that chapter on, I can't remember what it's called, but the chapter on grief. And you write, you know, do we, do we really want to talk about our feelings about climate change with a bunch of strangers? <laughs> um, no, thanks. There's everyone everywhere. And, you know, it's really similar for me. Like I'm very good about talking about grief in the ways it is in my life, but climate change, like, heck no, like head in the sand. I don't, I don't want to talk about that grief because it's, it's way too big for me. I can't, I can't begin to hold it even as a sizable grief um and and you talked about you just mentioned it then going along to the good grief workshops um and I'd love you in a moment just to talk a little bit more about that and like how you actually got yourself over the line to turn up um to to that um and you also talk in another chapter about how to communicate with people who maybe aren't yet at the same place you are on their climate journey and there was a sentence there which was people soften when you give them vulnerability. And I thought that was just a really interesting uh, comment and perspective that perhaps applies both sort of to our own journeys and then how we carry that forward. Mm, yeah, really interesting question. So, well, firstly, the Good Grief Network is a global network. Um, it was kicked off a few years ago by um, a couple of activists who were going through that similar kinds of challenges around their own climate grief journey. And it's basically, um, it's one of these wonderful models that can be, that's quite organic. So you don't, it's a global network. You can pick up the program and do a short training course. You don't have to be a counsellor. It is not pretending to be counselling sessions. Um, but, and it's a 10-step program. So a bit like Alcoholics Anonymous, you go through a series of workshops um, in a safe space in a small cohort. And I was kind of, you know, in my own kind of inner tumult and, you know, putting up a brave face about it, you know, my climate advocacy job and with my family, my friends. Uh, and then I got an email from Friends of the Earth who were putting on a fundraiser to, and you know, pay the money and I think it, was, it wasn't very expensive really and you could sign up for this set of workshops and I thought, well, that's interesting. And so I rang the volunteer organiser of the group Elizabeth Wade, who's um, just been a, a wonderful partner in this project in terms of sharing her feedback and experiences. But I just called her up to say, well, what's this about? And we were on the phone for like two, uh, two hours or something. And it was just like this wonderful, expansive conversation. And I was just really drawn into that. But also, I still was pretty skeptical. You know, I was like, well, 
really am I going to go and sit around and talk about my feelings for 10 sessions over, I think it ended up being over about 16 weeks or something. And, but the beauty of it was we had a global pandemic that was keeping us all inside. And so um, the program had shifted to online and it was on a Sunday afternoon and I couldn't really go anywhere for the first um, couple of months of it. So it was just, it was like a confluence of events, a bit of luck, um, a bit of stepping out of my own comfort zone to just give it a go. Uh, and it was like stepping into a very safe space or it's not called a safe space. Actually, they talk about stepping into a brave space where, um, where you show up fully, um, and you just have quiet moments of reflection, loads of resources to think about between sessions. And it was fundamentally a growth exercise for me personally. And I think, you know, we built some great connections through that group and it showed me that um, individual psychological help is obviously very appropriate at times for people and I've certainly used that at times in my life when I've needed to. But this was quite different because, as you say, holding the, um, the, the whole challenge of climate change by yourself is, is impossible. Of course it's impossible. It's a global, global challenge. It's a global issue. But you know, shared, shared, shared problem and thinking about um, different experiences that people were sharing and how you might use them or try them or, you know, whether they're individual practices like journaling or whether it's just, you know, um, seeking out experiences of connection, you know, locally or with your communities of interest. It kind of was the gateway to me really thinking about some of the themes that emerged in the book so it was a it was a wonderful wonderful experience for me really surprising I was very very skeptical that it was going to be something that would work for me but it was also a big thing so uh, you know um uh psychologists for a safe climate actually run quite short workshops that do similar types of group work um with the aim of driving people to action because you know just talking is wonderful opens up emotional space opens up the potential for creativity and problem solving but fundamentally running to action is some um, is probably going to be as healing for the longer term yeah it sounds like there's a sort of a going towards the dark and then that's opening up the space for the light and the, the I action. suppose so that was my experience and I, I acknowledge it wouldn't be everybody's experience to do that but um I found it a really enriching experience and um I'd encourage people who are looking for that kind of um, process to go and have a look at the Good Grief Network because it's it's a really remarkable. It's a network of people who are just really committed to this work. Um, sort of speaking of grief and tears and the, the moment for you with the bushfires in 2019-2020 um, on the East Coast, you know, that was personally a real wake-up call for me. I was also in the area at the time and it was you know, absolutely terrifying, this visceral realisation of what was going on. Um, and near the beginning of the book, you write about the town of Cabago and their response sort of in the wake of the climate crisis, literally burning down their doors. Um, that to me was a really interesting example of, of that way that connection, connecting with each other, talking kind of then was a really key part of bringing people together for action and um, repair, I guess. Can you tell us a bit about that oh, it's just It's just the most amazing story. So people may or may not remember Cobargo or may not know this town. It's down on the south coast of New South Wales. About 800 people live, you know, in the village area. And it was 
ground zero for the Black Summer fires. Um, you know, I, I appreciate we had a national trauma, you know, about a fifth of our eastern forests burned in that fire when usually in fires we get, you know, 2 or 3% burn. So, you know, we're all going through this enormous trauma. But in Cobargo it got a lot of national attention because our Prime Minister went there and, you know, people wouldn't shake his hand and it created a whole lot of headlines. And so I went and had a look at, you know, how Cobargo was going and, um, yeah, I met this wonderful person, um, Deborah uh, Summer, who is, she kind of is a wonderful example of how we think about, we need to think about climate action because she thought, saw a problem in her community, you know, community had been devastated, the town centre had been burned down, um, you know, even the ridge lines around the town are just still to this day, you know, they look like matchsticks because the trees will never grow back that were damaged. and she looked at what she could help with and she is schooled in something called the art of hosting which is you know a, a facilitation community of practice for you know helping groups work better together and come to find solutions together and so she worked with um you know folks in her network including Zena Armstrong who I write about in the book um to create the what they started calling Cobago community catch-ups and they thought well they had them at the local um local community hall they put um they put one on in I think it was February 2020. So just as the fires were calming down, um, and they had about a hundred people turn up. And what they did at that conversation was allow people to connect with each other. And you know there were a lot of tears, there were a lot of laughter, and from there they had a few more of them. They started moving them online, but quite quickly it turned into a whole lot of quite organic. Um, projects that evolved so the Cobago Folk Festival raised a lot of money and then that leveraged about 18 million dollars in government funding for to rebuild the the town centre and a lot of the town centre rebuild is going to be cooperatively owned you know there was art and you know art projects and um you know there's a tool library which has pretty impressive kit that's um come out of that that conversation that set of conversations and I think um, one of the folks I reference in the book is um, this wonderful book by Andrew Lee and Nick Terrell called um, Reconnected. Um, and it talks about the declining rates of volunteerism and political engagement in Australia. And this was a wonderful example of just kind of finding time and space and carving out just enough of it to allow people to connect and start um, creating solutions. I guess the challenge for us to think about is, you know, why can't that happen all the time? Why does it have to be, <laughs> yeah. you know, this kind of cataclysmic event that prompts prompts us to think about, right, we need to reconnect? Um, yeah. There's a lot of projects underway in Cobago now um, and I've stayed in touch with folks. I'm hopefully going to the Cobago Folk Festival next year, which we'll be back on. Um, it's, it's just there's a lot of challenges still in Cobago. You know, there's been a lot of trauma there's a lot of mental health challenges. A lot of houses have not yet been rebuilt a couple of years on, um, but it's looking for glimmers of light is, again, is kind of, kind of again, returning to that one of the key themes in the book. And it's, um, I think we spend a lot of time focusing on um, catastrophe and crisis. We should look at it. We should hold it in one hand, but then we also need to hold um, possibility and creativity and solutions in the other really difficult thing for the human brain to do but we need to give it a crack yeah 
I, I love that in that example with Cobago that as they're building back, they're building, you know, cooperative, but they're they're also thinking about the festival still and the art. And in one of the chapters, I think you're actually talking about farming and you quote Paul Hawken saying, regeneration is not only about bringing the world back to life, it is about bringing each of us back to life. And seeing the arts woven through in that community, it seems like a really big example of that. just wanted to say that if this conversation has got you thinking well we would really like to hear from you so you can get in touch with us directly via email podcast at australiaremade.org you can also give us a call and the details for that are in your show notes i want to give a huge shout out to everyone who takes a minute to spread the word about this podcast or to write a review it means the world to us we are a small not-for-profit independent team building a community of people who want a kinder smarter, more hopeful and solutions focused politics. So if that sounds like your jam, please go to the website, australiaremade.org and sign up to get updates and stay in the loop and check us out. Thanks. Back to the show. reading your book were really struck quite in the, at the beginning you talk about positive tipping points and we hear so much about you know the tipping points that are you know is going to tip us over to certain levels of climate disaster and you know the scary sea level rise moments and you know like in my head it's always the big chunk of ice melting into the sea is this sort of very um, visual imagination of that but you you talk about positive tipping points like can you Maybe for those who don't know, just give a quick intro to tipping points. And then what does what do the positive ones look like? Where do we get excited there? Well, tipping points is basically when you reach a point when you get a cascading effect of change. And that happens, you know, one minute, one person in your social circle's got an iPhone and then all of a sudden everyone's got them and it seems to happen in a flash. Um, we do hear a lot about um, tipping points that could happen or are potentially about to happen when it comes to climate impacts. So you know, I'm not an expert in those um, climate scientists that specialise in them. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of, I, I don't spend a lot of time focusing on um, negative tipping points. One of the really interesting conversations um, that I include in the book is with Will Steffen, who's, you know, contributed to IPCC reports. He's a climate counsellor, you know, professor at um, the Australian National University. Um, but the biggest lesson I learned from Will was, you can't predict a tipping point absolutely. You can, you know, experts will, and pundits will say tipping points may happen at a particular time and there's folks that do a lot of modelling around those types of things, particularly when it comes to disruptive technological change. But you can never see a tipping point until you look at it in the rearview mirror. And so we, when you look at some of the things that we have uh, changed in terms of renewable technologies and energy, which is where I spend a bunch of my time um, working in terms of my climate advocacy work. Um, there's been this kind of chronic under-prediction of what's possible 
And I think that's actually probably part of the human condition <laughs> rather than, you know, <laughs> the, due to any kind of fact that we might have got the model wrong. But a couple of examples that I love to cite um, is so back in 2014, the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that body predicted that solar, wind and geothermal energy would provide only 4% of the world's energy by 2100. But we're actually about to reach that probably in 2030. So that's seven decades ahead of that prediction. And also in the same year, back in 2014, so only you know about eight years ago, the International Energy Agency predicted that average solar prices would be five US cents a kilowatt hour by 2050. So it's very cheap for, you know, it's all a bit technical with the five cents and kilowatt hours, but everything. But um, that was achieved in 2020. So, and this is another interesting example is that, you know, when Twiggy Forest um, Fortescue Metals Group decided to go and build a hydrogen and fuel cell powered mining haulage truck, really big trucks, they did it in 130 days. So it's got the potential to be powered on green hydrogen. So you can see that there are tipping points that are happening everywhere at the moment. And I think what's really exciting is that we have a moment in front of us now, which is where I see this convergence of technology, economics, politics, and also community sentiment. And I think we're going to see multiple cascading tipping points through many systems. Um, and, you know, there's sci- I think when you think about positive tipping points, you think about the signs, the signs that things are changing. And I think, you know, the 2022 federal election in Australia meant that, you know, finally got a consolidated um, climate vote that's recognised and that's leading to outsized um, policy change right now. You know, we have a new target set with the UN legislation is travelling through the federal parliament for the first time in um, more than a decade, um, we're seeing change. And the other kind of change that I've noticed in the study that I talked about before around attitudes to climate is just the scale of people who are concerned about climate change. So you've got about a quarter of the country who are really worried and then you've got another quarter of the country that's really concerned. And so that's about half the country, you know, people aged 16 to 75 who are really worried. Um, and certainly going through the book and um, just literally tripping over stories of wonderful change around the country in all sectors, from finance to agriculture to, um, you know, technology um, to sustainability and land care efforts, those types of things. It just made me think, wow, we're on the precipice of some really amazing outcomes. Um, so, yeah, I think positive tipping, tipping points, when we think about them we, and we think about how we can play a role in creating them, we think about creating the conditions for tipping points to occur. And I think that's one of the sort of exciting things about reading your book is, you know, you're saying you're going through and tripping over examples. I mean, at some point when you're reading it, it sort of feels like another one. What, another one? You know, like there are so many there. And for me, it wasn't just heartening to read it, but it was also like, oh, great, there's this catalogue of things I can go back to so that, you know, when people are like, well, what about what's happening in, you know, energy? I can be like, oh, well, did you hear about this cool project? What are some of the things that as you were doing this research just kind of made you light up with excitement and possibility? I mean, you talk about, there's a, I love that you said there's tech, economics, politics and community. And I think that reminder that we so often look at these solutions as individual pieces and forget they're all in the same bucket tipping those scales. 
Um, but yeah, I'd love to know what, yeah, what got you really excited? Oh, so many things, so many stories. Oh goodness. Where could I start? Um, I think what was really interesting was kind of being able to step into different sectors, um, like looking at the climate tech startup space, that's really blossoming in Australia. You know, a new new network called Climate Salad that I write about in the book um, had its first ever get together in person in Sydney in uh, November 2021. And you walk into a room where there's all technology, experimental technology startups, all trying to, you know, um, get some venture capital, get some, get some startup seed funding. They're just doing amazing things. You know, there's a really interesting um, organization called uh, Bardi. And so Bardi is an incredible tech startup where they're using the black soldier fly to process food waste. And it's kind of mind blowing. It's, you know, run by um, a couple of 20 somethings who one's, um, One's got a background as an architect, and the other one's, you know, got a is an entomologist. You know, a couple, um, and they've just they've just created a business as their kind of second or third jobs. They're in their twenties, so organic matter goes into the system. The black soldier flies eat it, and then they produce uh, products that can be used for pet food. Um, and fertilizer, uh, and possibly one day human food as well. So they have been using like dried black soldier flies for snacking, and also the oil to make cakes. And, the, and it kind of it's when you just start thinking, how different could our lives be? But this is a startup that's just creating these wonderful climate positive outcomes. And you know, creating an it's a tangible example of circular economy. Yeah, another brilliant one is Ulu, which is like a um, plastics replacement, a bioplastic that's fed with seaweed. It uses um, water, not chemicals, and fertilizers like industrial chemicals to you know create the processes. It's raised a whole, it's raised millions of dollars. It's on the precipice of becoming, um, I think, a pretty exciting company, homegrown company, and it can make any plastic. So from car parts to, you know, plastic bags and the plastic completely biodegrades not only on land but also in water. And so you think about the scourge of microplastics and, and how that could be solved with some of these new technologies. That's, that's some of the mind-blowing things that you don't always get exposed to when you're working quite, um, uh, quite a lot in policy advocacy spaces. Yeah. I think that I remember reading that example about the flies and just being blown away by the scale of ambition. So I can't remember the figures, but, you know, they're, they're based in Melbourne, I think. They're not very big, but, mm. like, they're aiming huge across the country and I, I think that's something that's really exciting where people, you know, I was talking to someone the other day and, you know, we don't just want, you know, we don't want to just survive, we want to thrive and that's going to take these massive big levels of mm. ambition. Um. We'll come back to the community stuff in a minute, but I'm really interested in there's quite a lot of examples in the book around business and venture capital and the private sector being a really key part of the tipping point. Um, and it's interesting because that that side of things is either held up as the primary source of the problem or the key to the solution. And maybe maybe a bit of both, probably a bit of both. Did 
Did you feel like you had any kind of changes in your perspective from hearing about these things? Or I I think we often, yeah, struggle to grapple with the role of business in this transition because we've seen, I guess, from the fossil fuel industry, what big business can do very badly. Um, Mm. Yeah, it's something I'm grappling with personally. I I love your perspective Um, on that. Look, I took the approach through the book that we have a, a particular economic system that's set up in a particular way and if we're, while I would like to see significant changes to the way that eco- economic system is structured because it is not allowing people to um, really thrive, you know, the way, the way the, our, our economy and society is, is structured at the moment. Um, I did also, you know, recognise that business, big business, big finance is run by people who are just people, you know, they're not kind of creatures that are alien to us as a species, for goodness sake, but, um, but also a recognition that if we're going to get the scale of change that we need in the time that's required and time is ticking, this is the critical decade, we're going to need to work with the structures and frameworks that we have to some degree um, and, you know, look for, you know, opportunities obviously to break out of that system because of some of those um, complications and disadvantages and, you know, horrendous impacts for so many people. But I did find people who are, you know, big players, you know, investing billions of dollars and, you know, taking action in their spheres of influence as much as people who are working in communities or working in clean tech are, or working in politics. So um, what, what was interesting to me, though, is that there is like ample money to, you know, we, we have enough money to go and make the transition happen. Um, and there, but I do have questions, you know, coming out the other end of the book, questions about you know, how we can ensure that the way business shifts is accountable. You know, you know, in terms of ESG reporting, it's pretty much the Wild West. Most investors and um, asset managers are developing their own systems for measuring, you know, carbon and environmental standards. Um, there are some global changes happening which are progressive, but, um, you know, the devil will come down to the detail around those things and, I do think that, you know, certainly for advocates and campaigners who are working in this space, um, you know, we're moving from quite quickly from what the targets should be and what needs to be done to how it's being done. And I think it's going to require a lot more um, cooperation between, you know, governments, business and advocates to ensure that, you know, consumers, employees, investors um, can all have confidence the, the way we are going about, um, you know, accelerating our ambition is robust. So, yeah, so there's lots of great people doing really good work within the systems that we have, uh, but I think we do need um, to start staring, putting our spotlight back onto accountability mechanisms, particularly around carbon accounting. I, I really like that point that, um, you know, the people running these businesses are just people, and I think that's a really powerful reminder um, across across a whole lot of different things, actually. And when you were you had a have a chapter there on um, democracy and community involvement, and you you do say you know people seem to forget that politicians aren't deities or devils most of the time. Some are hyper qualified with impressive degrees and networks. Some have worked in public institutions. Others in the private sector. Some are community trade union or environmental champions. But they're just people when it comes down to it, as flawed as the rest of us. The only thing that sets this mixed bunch apart is power delegated by us to do something about the pressing issues society faces. So why does our engagement drop off with them after election time? 
like sounds pretty true to me. What did you discover about democracy and engagement? Um, well, I had a wonderful conversation with Linda Burney, um, mm. you know, MP for Cogra and now, you know, Minister for Indigenous Affairs, which is just wonderful to see. And she just very quietly with a bit of a half smile said, you know, I think people just don't really realise that you can access your MP whenever you like. Um, local MPs, they have to accept a request for a meeting. You know, I think um, people underestimate the influence and impact they can have as a member of their local community, particularly if they're already in an organised group. People will think, well, why would that politician want to talk to me because they're in parliament talking to other politicians or they're on TV or they're, you know, meeting with the local business chamber and those types of things. But really good MPs um, love to hear from their constituents. They love to talk to people. They're usually people, people, people. And... Um, but also they are very mindful of people who can show that they're a member of a larger network because, you know, um, politicians, the biggest predicament for a politician is how I'm going to get re-elected. Uh, and so they want to be connected to their communities. And for MPs that are too comfortable and not great representatives of their communities, um, it's almost more important for them to hear from their local constituents. And certainly I've met with dozens of MPs over the years in, through advocacy work. You know, I've, we've done MP visit um, events where we'll bring people from many local electorates to Canberra and, and meet, with them in, meet with their local MPs in Parliament House. They'll, you know, and the best situation is when you've got good networks locally who are building a long-term relationship with with their local MP. And I think one of the best examples of that is a wonderful group called Lighter Footprints that has worked across but not exclusively in the seat of Kuyong in Victoria, which um, until recently was Josh Frydenberg, our former treasurer's seat for many years. They worked for more than a decade and had a good relationship with their MP, but they built a really solid network in their community of people who are concerned about climate and environment, environmental issues. And they are able to get 150 to 200 people at a monthly meeting. They can have community events during elections that will see 600 people show up and it's not a surprise. They can mobilise people really quickly because they've built really great networks and local connections with shared concern and shared passion for the issues that they work on. And I've got no doubt that that group was really influential in helping see the result in Kuyong that saw Monique Ryan um, win the seat. So... Um, there are examples of this all over the place, but I think if you're not, um, not don't think of yourself as a political person, it might be quite challenging to think about going and meeting with your MP. But um, every time I've met with a local MP, and particularly when I've met with my own um, here in the seat of Cunningham, I've always been really surprised at how much they know about their community, how much they care about it, um, and how they particularly are holding those issues of economic development in their local electorate and how they prioritise it. Um, because it's around, but it's those very particular issues around, you know, not prosperity, but just kind of economic sustainability that are going to be crucial um, for, for people to ensure that they've got good livelihoods. And, you know, it's key to our conversation about transition as a nation. So, yeah, I think, um, yeah, politicians are just people. They've got disproportionate power, some of them in parliaments, not all of them. Um, but, yeah, I think they they um, work best when they're accountable to um, voters and community networks. And it, it seems to me your example there of lighter footprints and that kind of background work, you know, so 
sometimes I think we're so impatient for change that we forget that, you know, the tipping point of that moment of change is actually the result of years of, of work. And so that, you know, just hanging in there and keeping on doing that work, you never know when it's going to tip in your favour. Um, you also talk a little bit about the um, Zali Stable campaign about, you know, it started with a, a group of friends sort of bitching to each other about terrible policies and then someone saying, well, we should get on with it. Um, you know, there's, that's been massive, obviously, in the recent election. And, and one of the exciting things we've talked about on this podcast before is, is not so much that they were independents or anything like that, but there was such engagement with democracy from people around the country. You also uh, write in your book about um, a local Greens councillor in your area who I think says that, you know, actually local government was one of the most powerful things she's done. Um, so there's, you know, there's the meeting with the MP is maybe the first step. There's organising a group that you slowly work out. And then there's actually running. <laughs> um, can you tell us a bit about her story? Oh, Mithra is amazing. She's a local councillor who's um, been a climate activist for 20 years. Um, her kind of manifestation of her activism was around um, playing music, often playing music at protests and um, blockades and those types of things over many years. I actually first met her when she was um, a Greens candidate in the seat of Wentworth running against Mark Malcolm Turnbull about 20 years ago um, when I was a newspaper journalist writing about that election. Uh, and um, she did say to me that the single, like she felt like she's achieved more in four years than she has in all of her 20 years of activism because um, you can get so much done locally that's very tangible. You know, they've, you know, our local council has been widening and extending our bicycle path network. Um, we've got a renewable energy target. You know, the council adopted a climate emergency, which, and then they've joined the global um, compact of mayors, um, which provides guidance on how councils can make um, transitions. But I think, um, you know, the recognition that you can work very cooperatively at a local council area level when local councils are functional, of course, when they're working well. Um, I think that's um, something that Mithra was able to do with a lot of her councillor colleagues from different parties. So it's actually a testament to the, all of the councillors who've been working on these issues and also kind of, you know, negotiating over different issues they want to work on in the community as well. Um, what was really interesting as well was that the kind of rich industrial and union history in this region has helped foster co collaborative relationships through progressive politics over many years. We've had a Greens MP at a federal level here before for a while. You know, we've got a, that kind of coming together of progressive politics has, has shown to be possible. Um, it's been shown to be possible in other places. Look at, you know, the ACT government has had a effective progressive coalition for, for many years now and it's, you know, created tipping points through our energy system through the policies that's been created. Um, yeah, so I think it's really, really interesting to see that, you know, you can get like massive change in a region that's going to have and is having a really, um, you know, challenging transition from fossil-based industries to, to green-based industries that keeps the economy going here. Um, yeah, and that is done through those productive relationships that can happen at the local council um, level. Yeah, it's really, really encouraging. So, yeah, one of, the, one of the kind of exciting things for me about your book is that it covers so many different examples. Um, get the book and read it because we've just touched on like a minuscule amount. Um, 
But I like that it gives such a broad ecosystem and broad kind of sense of where people themselves can contribute. Like you don't have to be a genius 20-year-old like entomologist (laughs) to participate here. You don't have to eat flies to do this. Um, And I think one of the challenges we often talk about at Australia Remade is like how do you link the individual to that bigger picture structural change? Um, And, you know, it's not just buy a keep cup and, you know, green energy, although they're not bad things to do. So sort of as a, as a bit of a, a wrap up um, and in, at the end of your book, you've got some sort of steps for people. I think it's, you know, find your buzz and a few other things you can talk us through, but yeah. What do you, what do you want people to kind of really take from the book and, and where do you want them to take it? Mm, yeah. Great question. Um, firstly, I'd like to acknowledge that, um, you know, I've come up with something called the climate action awesome plan which is just a bit of a fun piece of alliteration really but um it's really inspired by dr ayana elizabeth johnson who's the founder of the all we can save project so she has a beautiful venn diagram of you know you know what your strengths are what you love doing and what's required and so i was really kind of unpacked that and i thought yes i agree with this framework but then i added a a fourth piece, which I think is actually crucial to creating large-scale behavioural change, which is about your networks. So what networks do you have that you can access and influence? Because the research that I write about in the book talks about behaviour change spreads really quickly when you've got people in one network, you know, creating a behaviour change that creates a new social norm, also being in another network. That's where you see like leapfrogging um, behavior change. And so like, yeah, you need celebrities to spread information, but the most powerful transformative people are those who sit on the peripheries of networks, creating new social norms around behavior change. And we need to really change behaviors if we're going to get, um, a lot of the change done that we need in the time that we've got. So, um, yes, I, so in a broad planning phase, if you're a planner and like making lists and I do, it, it's just a bit of a framework around finding what your strengths are, like what, what skills and knowledge do you have, you know, look at what you love doing because, you know, climate action can actually be a lot of fun. It doesn't have to be hard and, you know, self-flagellating. Um, look at what is required to be done and often looking locally or within your communities of interest or your hobby groups or your profession is useful, but then looking at those networks and how can you create leverage. So, you know, come in, and if you pull that together on a page, you'd probably find about, you know, five windows of opportunity where that sounds like fun and you can start Googling. Um, handily, I've also got on my website, if you go to climateactionstartshere.com, I pulled together a list that's also in the book um, of a whole lot of ideas of groups and organisations you can join. So you don't have to start a new organisation or start a new group. Oftentimes you can join something that's already going on and add fuel which is really great. Um, I guess what I kind of have arrived at after writing the book is I've learned that small individual pieces of action are great, actually. When you work in advocacy, it's all about systemic change, systemic change, biggest lever that you can pull, how you're going to get the biggest change in the shortest period of time and who's with us on that journey, really important. But um, small individual actions Behaviour change research and behavioural economics tells us that lots of people taking small actions, obviously, that scale will achieve change. But what it does is start pathways. 
where people will start changing their habits, start thinking about what they're doing. You make enough behavioural change in your own life, your own family life, your own workplace, you'll start looking around going, well, why isn't the change happening in other places? And um, a lot of the research does point to what we call spillover effects. So once you're taking one form of action, something comes next. And if you're taking private environmental actions, they are oftentimes a pathway to stepping into more collective or more public forms of action. And so I've learned not to be so judgy about people who aren't washing out their plastic bags, even though I never used to do that until the last few <laughs> years. So I had no time. Now, I've, now I'm crusading on it in my household with my kids. I love it. Not so oh, much. I just don't not like so your much. feeling. You, I just don't like the feeling on your hands in the water. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and I'm I'm not kind of, you know, accusing people of being environmental, um, you know, destroyers if they're not being 100% perfect. But um, but the other thing I think I've really reflected on since completing the book is when people ask you what they can do. What can I do? Tell me what the thing is I can do. And that, and because there's no silver bullets, I say to them, what's the thing you can do next? What's the next thing? Because there's never an end to social change and human creativity and human potential. And so what's the next thing? And as advocates, we're always asking, what's the next yeah. thing we're going after if once we've won a thing? So, so yeah, what's the next thing that you could do individually? What's the next connection you could make? What's the next? You'll find these changes are enriching um, to your life and to your community. But, yeah, thinking about, thinking about your role, thinking about what's next. And knowing that you don't have to do everything to make a really, you know, outsized difference. That was a really important part for me of that book was that reminder that I don't have to do the big thing now. I can start with a small step to get there because together we're very powerful. So that was thank you for, for kind of mapping that out. Um, and just, just before we finish, at the end of the book, you say, love this country, fight for it. What is it that you love and what are you fighting for? Oh, God, I'm going to cry immediately. So um, I don't know. I look out my window and I see incredible bushland and I'm really, really lucky to see that. And I've had the wonderful experiences with my family doing lots of camping and hiking um, in Australia. And just being connected to the natural world is something that I really hold dear. And I met the most wonderful woman, Nola Turner-Jensen, who I write about in the book, who's a Wiradjuri uh, woman who is mapping the Wiradjuri language using a, a place, the, like rebuilding that language. And it's, you know, the biggest, one of the biggest language groups in Australia and it covers a really large territory in New South Wales. And she taught me that she sees plants and animals and is always thinking about them as being an ancestor. And so she thinks in a regenerative way because she's thinking about how everything is connected. And I think what I love about this country is what I love about the people in it. It's what I love about the creativity in it. It's what I love about the nature and what I love about um, the, the way that we're now stepping up um, collectively to address this challenge. So I just think it's a we're we're really lucky to have a really stable, you know, relatively stable democracy. We're really lucky to have an incredible environment that's you know going through a lot of challenges with fires and floods and other extreme weather events. We're really lucky to have um, safety and security, um, big picture. 
And I think we're really well equipped to address some of the massive challenges that we face, not least environmental destruction, but also, you know, racism, inequality, um, you know, human rights and, and civil rights. I think we've got enormous potential to be able to um, rise to that challenge. And that's what I love about it. And that's what I want to fight for. Uh, Claire, thank you so much. And thanks for such a beautiful book to go out there in the world. I really appreciate your time and your, your thought and your heart there. Thanks so much for having me on. by Australia Remade. We celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and cultures at the very heart of what it is to be Australian. That is 60,000 plus years as the oldest continuing civilization on earth. I'm recording my part of our chat from Muinina country in Lutruwida, Tasmania. And I record from Dara country, which is just north of Sydney. Our deepest respects to the elders and traditional custodians of these lands and waters. This podcast would not be possible without the talents of the incredible Anna Wilson, our producer. You can learn more about Australia Remade, sign up to get emails and join the community of remakers over on our website. That's australiaremade.org. And if you love the show, please rate and review on iTunes. If you want to send us your ideas or thoughts for future episodes or just share something that's on your mind, you can email us at podcast at australiaremade.org or give us a call. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for all that you do and for being part of this community. We'll see you next time.